0: Benvenuti al Christian Podcast.
1: Well, my friends, the survivors out there, right after the apocalypse. My name is Beto Gudino from. Costa Mesa, California, broadcasting a signal of hope to all the world. And today, as you know, we always like to have amazing guests on our show. And I have a book in my hands called The Reformation, not Reformation, Reformation Book, which is authored by Alan Hirsch and Mark Nelson. So two authors, but today we have Mark Nelson on the show. And we're going to talk about a little bit of the ideas on the book so let's welcome mark nelson mark how are you doing
0: i'm good i'm good it's good to be with you thanks for the invite yeah, nice
1: love it man it's a great day um i hope your day has been it's been good so far i think you're like three hours ahead of me right or two
0: yeah 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 it's about yeah three hours four o'clock here yeah. okay
1: So, yeah, I I always love it when people are living in the future because you're ahead of me, man. You can tell me what's going on and how my day is going to end.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, And really appreciate you being here. And you co-wrote this book called Reformation. It has super important ideas. But Mm -hmm. before we start talking about some of your ideas, would you mind telling our audience kind of like who you are, what you do, a little bit of your background?
0: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. And so that's the eastern part of the state of Tennessee. And uh, I've been uh, in vocational ministry for 34 years now. So uh, I, I, uh, w- I've been in youth ministry. I've been in uh, campus ministry at Purdue University, uh, planted a church 14, 15 years ago. And so I, I am still with that church currently. And, and honestly, making a transition from that for the next year, I'm going to be transitioning out of that role of lead pastor. And uh, I've taken a position working at Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I uh, work with churches, actually, and try to create learning communities of churches that will kind of come alongside each other for 12 to 24 months and and kind of make some paradigm shifts. So, So yeah, I'm in Knoxville. I've lived here for 25 plus years of my life, originally from Indiana. I'm married. My wife is a professor of nursing. I have three children that live all over and and, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of my story. That's kind of what I do, uh, vocationally speaking and, and personally speaking.
1: Nice. Love it, man. Well, thank you for sharing. And, oh man, vocational ministry, right? You're a pastor. uh um, yep. you don't go into this just because you have to, I mean, I don't know if some people do, but I feel like if you're in, in ministry, if you're in the things of God, it's, I feel like there needs to be at least an honest pursuit of it, sure. and I think that's a little bit of what you guys are talking about. That is super important on your book, the Reformation. Uh, so before we talk about what what the book is about, the Reformation, would you mind um, just expanding a little bit on what was the Reformation? You know, for people that may not be familiar at all with with what was that.
0: Sure, yeah. It's a time in history, really, when the church began to rethink some things. You know, you're talking, oh, 1600s. I'm not your, your best history expert, but you're looking at a time when, when people began to think about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What's it mean to practice faith? What does it mean, and what is the role of the church in the midst of that? And so reforming happened, and, and I think, uh, and I believe in that it's, it's always it's simple reformanda, which means always reforming. And I think over the past few hundred years, we're continuing to do that. And if you, if you read people like Phyllis Tickle's book, uh, The Great Emergence, you'll see that her belief is that every 500 years, there is, a, there is a reformation in a sense. There is a great paradigm shift in what the church is and how the church functions. And, and her belief, and this book was written probably 10, 15 years ago, her belief is that we're currently in one of those times of transition that it's another time of reforming, uh, another time of, of shifting paradigms to go, okay, what, what does God desire for His people? What does God desire for His people that follow Him? How should they fun- function as a church, as communities in this world? What role should we play in putting the world back together? And so I believe there's always this reforming, mm-hmm. and I believe we're in one now too. So I would probably agree with Philistickle that, in that assessment.
1: Wow. Love it, man. Yeah, I think I see... I, I, yeah, I'm a little bit of a futurist. And I noticed, you know, I, I grew up in the Christian church in Mexico, uh, Protestant. But I, I do notice, you know, as the world becomes more globalized, and you even have talked about some of this in your book, um, there's... we're in a five... and after 500 years, we're in this period of transition, of paradigm shift of new ideas of the church, understanding who we are, what's our mission, what is discipleship, like all these questions that have been there for 500 years. It's mm-hmm. a little bit of like revisiting what they mean. And I don't know if 500 years from, from now, maybe people will look back and they'll say, yeah, that was the the big reformation. Maybe that you guys are coining a word <laughs> that will last 500 years. Um, but I feel like it's necessary, and I want to start—well, we're going to talk about a little bit of what you describe here, uh, the, the El Camino journey. But first, mm-hmm. I want to talk about this this paragraph that you wrote here. Um, it's page 159. It's just so, so good. I love it. Jesus brought about a reformation by telling a subversive alternative story. He told a story that is more than science— more than history, more than philosophy, more than anthropology, and more than morality. A story that not only happened once, but is still happening. Like every truly great story, its truth may lie not so much on its historical or even philosophical veracity as in its effects on the soul of the
0: reader. Mm-hmm.
1: Is this how you define a Reformation?
0: Absolutely. We, we feel like the message that is the gospel, which is good news, which is earth-shattering or earth-shaking and world-changing, has been co-opted into uh, a passive, uh, make-you-feel-good story. And, and when we talk about Reformation, we're talking about a reframing. Obviously, that's the word, and we made up this word, and so I know it's very pretentious, so my apologies for, for that. But but it was just our way of trying to express what's it mean to take a story that has been uh, shrunken down into a little box and contained and written down on a napkin when it's actually a story that is as far as my hands can reach, it's more than that. And so what we have seen is this co-opting of the message of Jesus, this co-opting of, of the gospel. And one of the analogies we use in the book is, is something that comes from a, an author named Don Everts, where he talks about the message of Jesus should take our breath away. It should cause us to stand in awe. But he said, what we've done is made it uh, like tofu. <laughs> he said, we have taken this message and nothing against tofu eaters, but tofu is pretty bland. It, it, it soaks up the flavors that are that's around it. It doesn't stand out by itself. And the gospel has done that. When he says, shouldn't the gospel be more like warhead candy? I don't know if you've ever had warhead candy, but you take some of these little pieces of candy and you put it in your mouth and you're like, what the oh, holy, yeah. you know, it's like you either You're going get this out of my mouth or this is the greatest thing ever. Mm. And the subversive alternative story of Jesus, which you read about there is more than tofu. It is more than just someday if you're good, you'll fly away on some glad morning. This is a message that Jesus tells that should, when we put it in our mouths, should make us go, what the heck, get this out, or it should change our lives. We should start seeing life in color. A black and white world is suddenly put into color, and and that's the message of Jesus that we want to reframe. We're not changing the message of Jesus. That's the key here, because when you talk about reframing, I, th- I think this is really important because people will understand it. Oh, you're so one is to change the message. Not at all. The picture is of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus that should take our breath away. That is all those things that you read. That is more than science, more than history, more than philosophy, more than anthropology, more than morality. It's more than that. That's the picture. What we do is simply say, what about putting a new frame around it? When you take a frame and you put it around a picture I don't change that picture by putting a new frame around it. But what I allow to happen is for you to take a different look at this picture, to see it for a second or third time fresh and anew. We think the story of Jesus needs to be reframed in that way, not to change it. it, it it's it's the absolute truth yesterday, today, forever. It's world-changing. It's life-saving. It's, it, it puts the world back together. But we've done something to it by reducing it to tofu. And we should allow it to be more than this and more than this, a subversive alternative story. We think that can happen if we learn to reframe it so people see it differently.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so good. Do you think, as you talk about this reduction of the gospel, are mm-hmm. you talking about mainly the Western world or this is the world in general? Or uh, is this Christianity or uh, where did we get this sense, you know, I, I really want to get to this part where you talk about the El Camino, because in a sense, I feel like it represents uh, people on a journey. Right. And you also talk about on the book about the Burning Man experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so these these ideas where people are in a spiritual search, even without almost like knowing they're in a spiritual mm-hmm. search. How yeah. did we get here? What's what was um uh, what brought us to this point where we can no longer see the picture in a way that entails a great story and just look at it and, okay, nice, nice picture. Let's move on. Yeah. What happened?
0: Well, well, I think one of the things we've done is, is we've stopped trying to understand the world around us. And so um, one of the phrases we use in the book is we need a better missional anthropology, meaning understand the world in which we live and the culture in which we live. In a missional way, that we've been sent by God into this world to to bring this good news, and what seems to happen is our understanding of people is so lacking that we don't know how to speak into that culture. Um, there is a longing in our world. So, if you, so I live in Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville, Tennessee is the, is the southern United States. The southern United States is known for its evangelical numbers. It's known for being conservative. Knoxville, Tennessee is a pretty evangelical, let's use that phrase, uh, an evangelical area. The reality is in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, 79% of people in the city, an evangelical, very conservative southern city, 79% of those people claim to either be none, as in I have no faith, or I'm done with faith. That's 79% of some places supposed to be evangelical. And what we're doing are creating faith communities and churches and teaching and preaching messages for the 21% that do claim some faith. Mm -hmm. What about for the people the other 79% that that our are none or are done. We don't have any understanding of these people. We don't have any understanding of what they're looking for, what they're searching for. You know, C.S. Lewis was considered this incredible apologist and 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 he was. And he was a great writer. And some people say the greatest work that C.S. Lewis gave to us as an apologist was he taught us about longing. And the German word for that is Sehnsucht. And Zinzuk is this this longing that there's something missing. And what we're not understanding, I believe, in the people that that we're trying to communicate with and reframe this gospel for, is we don't understand what they're looking for. And if we don't understand what they're looking for, we're just giving them whatever we want to give them. And what we give them is a reduced tofu-based type of faith. So N.T. Wright talks about how all individuals, and there's some debate on this, whether it's just these four or not. He said all individuals are searching for something, longing for something. He says they're longing for justice, which I would define justice as uh, putting the broken pieces back together. That's my definition of justice. He says they're thirsting for spirituality, so meaning something bigger than us, bigger than ourselves. They're hungering for relationships, which I think that's easy, especially during time of COVID and pandemic, we're desperate for for more relationships and more community. He says the fourth thing is everyone delights in beauty. I think that understanding the longings of the people that we're in community with, that we talk to, the 79% of the duns and nuns, understanding what they're longing for, what they're searching for, what we haven't offered them anything that speaks into those longings, that's on us. I believe the gospel of Jesus is, is, is warheads in your mouth mm-hmm. and it should take our breath away. Yeah. And something has happened um, to keep that from happening. And, and the reduction of it is, is, is what's happened. And so our calling is to be, so Paul would say in one of his letters, we are to be stewards of this mystery. We've been given stewardship of this. So stewardship is basically take care of this. And the mystery is what we find in Jesus. I just think we've been horrific stewards. I I think we've failed. I think we've reduced it. I think we've made it bland and tasteless. And that's because we don't understand the people that we're talking to. We don't understand what they're really looking for. What we think they're looking for is a big fancy church with a big, big show where you're gonna you're gonna be impressed. What they're looking for is show me how you're putting the world back together. What they're looking for is, okay, speak to me of this thing that that is bigger than you. What they're looking for is real community and real relationships, and what they're getting is is judgment. They're getting bureaucracy. They're getting they're getting a very self-contained. No, I'm more concerned about building up my little kingdom than I am putting the world back together. And if that's all they see, then they don't want anything to do with us. Mm-hmm. And so I think. I think in order to reframe it better, we're going to have to make those steps. And, and, you know, we, like you said, we talked in the book about walking the Camino, which I did with my son. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. And also Alan's experience uh, with the Burning Man. What we found in both the Camino and the Burning Man is these are very spiritual things, but they didn't want anything to do with the spirituality we were offering them. And the the whole impetus of the book, honestly, is this whole idea that we have, we have lost the ability to speak truth into people's lives because we no longer understand where they're coming from. They are searching, but there is what Walter Brueggemann would call a crisis of interpretation. And I would say we've just been poor stewards of this mystery. Mm -hmm. So if these people are looking for this at the Camino, if they are looking for something spiritual at Burning Man, do we even know how to reframe the message of Jesus? Because I believe the message of Jesus speaks into their longings. I believe the message of Jesus would change their lives and put this world back together. Do we even know how to consider how we might go about that? That, Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's the issue we're trying to address.
1: Yeah, no. And this is very important as the church moves forward to, to understand that there is, you said it, a crisis of interpretation. I Mm -hmm. mean, that's, that's massive. And I just want to say, um, you know, as, as we move on to talk about a little bit of a, of El Camino experience, I did have a, an episode, like, I don't know, five or six episodes ago with Beth Severstein. She's a doctor in, in Chicago. And she mm-hmm. did a very interesting qualitative research at Burning Man. So some of you guys huh. who are listening to the episode, maybe you want to go check that one out. Cause it was super interesting you no know? she 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 was there and she like did this the study about you know people's longies and and stuff like that and a lot of them she said she found out that they were uh previously christian right or they grew up yeah. christian and now they're in this journey where they're still looking for that that sort of like spirituality uh encounter right so that's burning man but you were on the el camino in spain can you can you tell us what is that? You know, for the people that are unfamiliar sure. all with, I mean, El Camino, The Road, <laughs> what does that mean? What, would that be important for anyone to go on that road? What, is it, what did it mean to you?
0: Yeah. Well, the, the history of it is called The Way of St. James. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and it's called The Camino, The Way for short. And, and by the way, there's, I would recommend highly, there's a movie called The Way uh, I think it came out around 2011, 2012. It was on Netflix for a long time. I don't know if it still is. Martin Sheen stars in it. And it's pretty accurate to the experience that we had. Mm-hmm. But the way of St. James finds its history in James, the disciple of Jesus, that after the resurrection, and again, this is apocryphal, this is not, some of this can be scripturally supportive, but most of it cannot. But the, the legend or the history goes that, When Jesus uh, resurrected, and the followers understood the story, then he ascended, and then he said, go into all the world, and the disciples began to spread across, and James uh, supposedly went to northwest Spain, uh, which is where Santiago Santiago de Compostela, um, so Santiago is the field of uh, Compostela is a field of stars, I think, is that translation. But James went there and evangelized northwest Spain. But then as uh, the book of Acts goes on, James comes back, and I think it's in Acts chapter 12 where we read that James is beheaded. Okay, so there is a little scriptural support for this. But then the story goes that jo- that James's disciples mm-hmm. took his dead body, uh, went across the Mediterranean, got out there on what would be the southeastern coast of, of Spain, and they, they cared for his body, and they, they made a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, and there his bones supposedly lay, actually in the cathedral there. You can see what is supposed to be his tomb. And so that began this tradition where people would make a pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. And uh, the real Camino is that you leave your front door and walk to Santiago de Compostela. Mm. Um, most people don't do that. There is a traditional way that is is the Camino that goes from saint jean pied de port in France, which is just on the other side of the Pyrenees Mountains, and they walk to Santiago de Compostela, which would be about 500 miles, basically. Wow. And so, yeah. And so my son and I, so there's about a quarter of a million people a year. At least those were the last stats I saw. Those could be higher or lower now. I don't know. But about a quarter of a million people a year that walk some form of the Camino. And to be an official pilgrim of the Camino, you've got to walk at least 100 kilometers. Hmm. And so my son and I, um, when he graduated college in 2013, I told him I created this tradition for my family without consulting my wife, which wasn't the smartest thing. But I said, "Said son, when you graduate university, I'll take you anywhere you want to go in the world for a week. And he said, well, what if we walk the Camino for a month? And I said, well, that's a lot different, but sure, let's do that. So I took a sabbatical for my job. Wow. And in the summer of 2013, we walked the Camino. We started at Pamplona, where they run the bulls. Mm-hmm. We started there, and we walked 722 kilometers, which was about 450 miles and um, we walked for 28 days. And as you walk, there are paths you walk, there you walk on the road, you walk through cities. Uh, There'll be some days where you won't see a person and there'll be other days where you have people all around you. You sleep in hostels, uh, which are not as bad as it sounds. Uh, it's, It's really fun, honestly. Uh, you're so tired by the time you walk, you get up in the morning about seven or so, and you walk till about three in the afternoon. And there are restaurants and there are bars and all these types of things that you can stop and eat at. So you don't have to carry your food. There are markets you can stop at for food and you meet people along the way. And the tradition again, is that we're walking the way the St. John's St. James disciples carried his body to Santiago. And then you arrive in Santiago de Compostela and there's a cathedral there. And most of the pictures that you'll see from, from the Camino are pictures of people as they complete it in front of the, uh, in front of the cathedral. Mm-hmm. And so it was life-changing for us. Uh, it was a sabbatical for me. My wife says it was uh, a rite of passage that I had to go through it with my son to let go of him because <laughs> he was graduating college and, wow. and moving to, moving to Boston. And uh and it was a wonderful time for him and I, and, mm-hmm. and it is a spiritual pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. And I believe though, that most people on it don't understand the spiritual nature of the pilgrimage. Mm. It, it is a time of discipline and quiet and, and walking and, and being in community. It's all of that. Um, what was fascinating to me is the lack of spirituality in the people that I met. Mm. So people come from all over the world. And, uh, <clears throat> Probably 60% speak English, so that was good wow. because I spoke no Spanish, basically. My son spoke a little bit, and so um, but we, we met so many people to this day that I, that I am friends with, and uh, it was a wonderful journey of getting to know them and live in community. And what was fascinating is when you'd meet somebody walking, and you ended up walking with them for seven or eight hours, you might actually walk with them for a week. Because again, we walked 28 days Yeah. because you just keep crossing each other's paths. There was always, they would say, well, what's your name? So you'd always exchange names and then they'd want to know where did you start walking? Mm. Um, because everybody starts at a different place. Again, the traditional is you start in France, St. Jean de Port uh, and then the third question they'd always ask is what do you do for a living? And so mm. I'm walking this trail, a spiritual pilgrimage, And I would meet these people and I go, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And they say, so you're, you're a priest. I said, no, no, I'm not a priest. Well, what is it you do? I said, well, I, I, I minister at a church in the inner city of Knoxville, Tennessee, and we have gatherings that worship and and they go, okay, so you're a priest. go, No, (laughs) no, seriously, I'm not a priest. What, Mm -hmm. what fascinated me about, the trail was, it was very difficult for me, again, having been a vocational pastor for 30 plus years, I had a hard time explaining to them what I did because Mm. they had no contextual understanding of what the church is because the European culture is very post-Christian. yeah. And that honestly, walking it and seeing that and struggling to have those conversations was part of what brought this book to life was going, Man, we have done a poor job. I don't even know how to talk about my faith with these people. Wow. How do we do this better? And so, but the Camino, I'd recommend it highly. My wife and I have walked it a few years later. And we walked 120 kilometers, so it was much shorter. But uh, again, you, you have a lot of different options. And, and uh, we, we loved it. We're Probably her and I are going to do it again. I'm probably going to take a small group over sometime with my new job. And yeah, it's, it's a, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's a wonderful time
1: yeah so basically what you're saying um, is that for some people going on that road it's it's nothing more than a hike
0: right Wow yeah actually we we saw a lot of school groups like high school kids that were like Catholic youth organizations um, and we also saw people that were uh, like it was like a what we were told is some some places in Spain before you start a new job out of university, they would want you to do something like the Camino, mm-hmm. like an adventure, and then, and then come to, to work. Uh, and so for some people, it was simply just an adventure that they should take. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so it was quite interesting, the people that we, the people that we met and their stories, and, and, uh, and we did meet people from all over the world, there is yeah. no doubt.
1: Wow. Yeah, it's so interesting. you mentioned at some point a woman. I'm just gonna say, you know, from what I read, it seems like there's there was a woman named Alex, um, mm-hmm. I think from England. Yes. Who had um who was on the Camino, right? And every now and then, like you said, you would cross paths again. Mm-hmm. And you know, part of these conversations about what do you do, where do you come from, and things like that. And um At some point, you said that you're, um, like, having dinner or eating together, right, in a a, probably the hostel or whatever, and then she said something like, you know, everybody is kind of, like, telling their story of their experience in the journey and what they've learned or whatever, and then when it gets to her, it seems like she had already analyzed what she needed to say, and she just came up with this phrase, well, first of all, I just want to say, I don't believe in God, Mm -hmm. right? So... (laughs) I mean, so interesting that she had to make this statement just mm-hmm. to, for starters, right? If you want to get to know me, the first thing you should know, Mark, is that I don't believe in God, right? I mean, what yeah. kind of introduction is that? But it's at the same time, what you're saying, right? You were on this journey, probably a little more with the, I mean, you're connecting with, connecting with your son, mm-hmm. uh, write a passage, like your wife said, mm-hmm. um. On a journey that that pilgrims, you know, the legend tells, they took uh, Saint James on this journey, right? So it has some mm-hmm. some spiritual elements to it. I mean, regardless, right? If 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 you yeah. want it or not, but here is somebody that's on that same journey and probably acknowledges some of that of the backdrop of why mm-hmm. this El Camino, right? And you end up in a in a church in a cathedral with right bones yeah. or whatever. Uh so interesting that it's almost like I don't know if this is what went through her mind, right? But I'm maybe this this is what people experience in the world, right? I'm mm-hmm. going to go on El Camino just to prove that if God is real, he must show it to me. If not, then I'll find out, right? And this is his last yeah. chance maybe to prove himself real to me. Yeah.
0: The fascinating thing about Alex was so that first night, you know, she goes, I just need you to know I don't believe in God. And then she went on to describe her experience that day. And and she described beauty. She described creation. She described that she was asking herself questions about purpose and meaning in life and that she she like worked for the 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 public transportation like what do they call it? the underground in in London. And she worked, she worked on the underground and she realized that her job didn't really have purpose for her. Mm. And that, and so she was asking all these existential questions and, and experiencing the beauty of creation. But yet she prefaced all that with, I don't believe in God. (laughs) And so actually it was a couple of days, maybe three or four days after that, you know, as a, as a pastor, I'm supposed to be able to go, Oh, but let me tell you why you don't (laughs) <laughs> you know, really I should believe in God. Yeah. I didn't do that. I just kept quiet. And I wondered as I walked the next day, whether that was right or not. Well, a couple of days later, I still remember where I was sitting uh, on this curb in, in a town that we had settled in for the night. And I had my earbuds in and I was listening to a podcast or something. And, and Alex came walking by and I said, Hey, Alex, she goes, Hey, I said, so do you just get in? Yeah, I just got in. I said, Alex, I need to tell you something. And I said, you know the other night at dinner when you talked about how you didn't believe in God? She goes, yeah. I go, "I hope you hear this right, but I don't think I believe you. Mm. And she says, what do you mean? I said, I I think you actually do believe in God. because." And then I said, why don't you tell me about the God that you don't believe in? Because I probably don't believe in that God either. Because a lot of what people say they don't believe in is religion. It's hierarchical structure. It's, it's people being mean to each other. Mm. That's not, that's not the faith that I know. That's not faith in God. So I said, I think you do believe in God. Well, nothing happened from that, but then we had another week or so till we got to the end and it was in that church, the cathedral. And, uh, Alex somehow got there before I did. I think she might have cheated and taken a taxi or two, but she got there before I did. <laughs> and she was sitting in the church because you go, when you arrive, you go into, a, uh, they have two or three masses every day. And so we arrived, we put our pack down, we went in and there was Alex sitting about six rows back. And I came up behind her. I said, hey, Alex, how are you doing? She's, and she was crying. And I said, "What's what's going on? And she had just found out that, that mass that day was going to be given by, uh, by a priest that was going to speak in her grandmother's language. I think it was Italian, I think, where her grandmother was from. And so that moved her. And then she began to tell me, she goes, you know, in London, I live in an apartment, a flat, as they call it. I live in a flat that's right next door to the church. I go, really? She goes, yeah, like the, the, the wall of my flat where I, where I sleep in my bedroom is actually on the other side of that wall is the sanctuary of the church. And she said, "Sometimes I sometimes I just walk over and put my hand on the wall and it feels like I'm suddenly in church." And she goes, "I feel something bigger than me." And and we're standing there, you know, we've been walking for weeks, and I I said, "Well, Alex, what do you think that means?" And she said, "I I, I don't know." I said, "I don't know either, but I think it means something." And and I don't have a great moral to the story or a, an ending where, and then I went out and baptized her in some fountain or something. Mm. That's not what happened at all. I don't know what happened to Alex, mm. but I'd like to think that in that spiritual pilgrimage, she, she had her eyes opened to something that was bigger than her. She had her eyes open that maybe faith wasn't about religion, but about a Jesus, about a God who loves her so very much. I won't know, I'll never know, but the last thing she needed from me was religion. The first thing she needed was just sincere belief and questions that led her to consider that there might be somebody bigger than her. And those people we met all over the Camino. It was amazing.
1: Wow. Wow, so good, man. What a journey and Alex, if you're listening for whatever reason, I don't know, sometimes God works in really strange ways. But yep. I feel like, one, if you're alive, and two, I feel like, I I don't know, when you were talking about Alex, I'm like, I want to know what happened to uh-huh. her, right? What, What's the end of the story? And man, I, I was reading Acts, the book of Acts, mm-hmm. or I, I was actually listening because I just walk and, and you know, have mm-hmm. the Bible read to me. But it's so interesting because it just feels kind of like that, you know, it's okay. And then Paul was living in i think rome at the end mm-hmm. right and it's almost like and that's the end <laughs> you know people visited yeah. him and you're like hey Luke," because you know, supposedly luke wrote um acts right acts. so i was like mm-hmm. man could you have made like a conclusion put a bow to it <laughs> like wrap it up and say yeah. okay this is this is the summary of the story this is the moral of the story kind of like you're saying you know, i wish yeah. i could have said oh and then i went on to the river and she got baptized but i feel like almost like part of this this idea of even the book of acts just to me it's, it feels like an abrupt ending mm-hmm. it's because it doesn't end right there right i feel like maybe it's this comparison with el camino well Mm -hmm. camino is a road to somewhere but that doesn't mean that that's the end of the road right maybe that's Mm -hmm. just the beginning of your journey of faith or whatever your journey is but um i i i have the maybe the assumption that death is the (laughs) no is the end of the road um and everything we do in life is just continuing on that road but Mm -hmm. um As we think of these ideas, what is helpful for, I think I want to focus a little bit on the church. And I don't know if this is maybe where you want to talk about the three frames Mm -hmm. um, or the both end and either are paradox. But what is helpful for Christians to start opening our eyes to see the picture with a different frame? What are yeah, some of the ideas maybe that you guys propose in the in the yeah. book to help Christians?
0: Yeah, that's good. You know, one of the things on the, on the Acts piece, um, people believe that because there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, that it ends so abruptly and so oddly because the author expects us to write chapter 29 and chapter 30 that our lives. And so there's a there's a theology based upon that um, it's it's uh, NT right again, but talking about act five theology is my label for it and he talks about what if we had what if we had a shakespearean play and it was a five-act play but it only had four of the acts written and we were given this play and we were asked to act it out what would we do Hmm. And, and well we'd act the first four acts out then what would we do for act five well we would we would base the characters of act five upon the story that happened in the first four acts. We would read and know the first four acts like the back of our hands. Mm. And then when it came to living out act five, we would stay true to the story that was being told. What he says, what Wright says is that we're living in act five right now and the world in which we live as followers of Jesus, we are to live according to the story as it's been played out so far. And so to use your analogy of acts ending so abruptly, yeah, we're in chapter 29. We're in chapter 30. We're we're living this out now and the church is supposed to be coming into this world and presenting a gospel that 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 says we're going to participate in this story. We are players in this play. We are we are characters in this story and we have a role to play. Not not salvific, not like, Hey, look at us. We're going to save the world like Jesus did, Mm -hmm. but we come alongside the G uh, by Jesus and empowered and dwelled by the Holy Spirit to live in a way that is true to the story. So far, we are called to do that. We are called to live in that way. The problem is we live in a world that is freakishly broken. And, and, just let's just go for the last eighteen months of of pandemic, of the political nauseating rhetoric, the everything that we're going through now, how is it we're supposed to to live in this world? Well, I, I think it's to tell the story of Jesus well. And to go to your question of the either or or the both and I I think it's understanding that that the story of God is about Answers, yes, there's answers found in Jesus, but it's also about the mystery that I can't provide an answer. That's a both and. I think it's understanding that the wonder and the mystery that we're called to um, talk about, that we're called to illustrate, that we're called to tell, is beyond an either or. It's a yes and. It's, um, you know, it's the old story of the the four blind men who who, who are – who are taken into a room where there's an elephant and they're each given a part of the elephant to touch. And then they're asked to uh, describe the elephant. And these four blind men all describe what they felt. And one of them says, well, the elephant is, you know, it's a leg and it's this big and it's got this many. And someone says, no, the trunk is this. Or someone says, no, the skin is very. And they each think that they're describing the totality of the elephant when in actuality, they're just describing part of the elephant. Mm -hmm. And what we've got to understand is that in a both-and understanding of the gospel, that everything we're telling is just part of the story because there's so much more. There's so much more for us to live out. There's so much more for us to believe. There's so much more for us to understand. If I invite you into my house and I have you come over for dinner, you'll probably come in the front door. You would probably see the the front door area. You might, you'd probably come into the dining room. There's a chance you would come into the kitchen and see us preparing. You, you might use the, the bathroom at some point, And then you would leave. Now, you could say, oh, you have a beautiful house, or you have an ugly house, however you interpret it. <laughs> but the reality is you've only seen part of my house. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. You didn't see the bedrooms upstairs. You didn't see the basement down below with ping pong tables. You didn't see... This room, you didn't see that room, you didn't see my office. What we do when we come to God is, is we are saying, Oh, God is this and God is this, and that's all God is. You know what? That's just the foyer, you know, or that's just the living room. God has more rooms than we could ever imagine. And what we're saying when it's both and when we're talking about mystery and wonder is to realize we we so often just have a one room narrative of what God is. But this house is more rooms than you could ever explore in your life. You haven't seen them all yet. And for us to tell a story about a God that that's big is truer to the gospel than one that I can write the steps of salvation on a napkin and give it to you. If my God can be contained on a napkin, I'm not sure that's my God. My God is so much bigger than that. And for us to enter into a culture where we're playing a part in this play we have to understand this story is far greater than us and we're just playing a small part in act 5.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so good. And I feel like that's where <clears throat> Well, in my understanding probably is that the the mind of Christ or the Jesus paradigm as you, as you call it in the book or uh you also mentioned it's like the the news um mm-hmm. if that's the word um I feel like that mind of christ it's a unifying narrative in a sense right yes. it's, it's the truest narrative of who we are as humans and when we understand and we start seeing the world through that different right. set of eyes which is his eyes right there's more room for like actual grace and and empathy and understanding mm-hmm. each other and what people are going through, right? And understanding their their journeys and understanding our, our culture to be able to read our culture. You talk about these three frames. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to talk about like the, because um, I think it's super helpful for the church of today to understand that in, in a sense, the world has this um, world vision or, you no. Know, cosmovision or whatever you call it mm-hmm. um of the western frame the eastern frame and the southern frame could you explain a little bit of those three frames
0: yeah absolutely so um basically in the states we live in a a western frame of the gospel which is a very um like not legalistic but legal language like there's guilt there's sin, so there must be something paid. It's a legal argument that, that comes to the gospel. Um, and this, this legal argument is actually, I'm going to find the chart in the book here as I'm, I'm talking about it. Um, and, and the Western frame is, is presents a gospel that is about true and false, right and wrong, individual and ideological. That's what we know. That's what I grew up with. And that's why the atonement theory that I grew up with makes so much sense. I need penal substitutionary atonement because I'm guilty of my sin. Uh, I have lived a false life. I need to be true. That's the Western frame. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. But I also think that the Eastern frame, the Eastern frame is is, is kind of um, shame. And when you look at honor, shame, grace, disgrace, um, when you look at— um, uh, countries in the world where that is the predominant way of looking at life either you're shamed or you have honor actually more of the world understands honor and shame than than guilt and and in the United States we think there's only one way to present the gospel it's this guilt you're either right you're wrong you need freedom from your guilt but but honor and shame is actually what the bible's written in in terms of the culture well, then let's add another one to it. You have not only Western and Eastern, you have the Southern, which is more about power and powerlessness. It's about freedom from fear. It's all of this. And it's, it's like uh, political uh, commentary. I mean, um, and, and more Southern hemisphere nations come to know Jesus by liberation. You know, we've been freed, a very Exodus theology. The issue is, not that there's three different ways of approaching Western, Southern, Eastern, and Southern. It's the fact that we pretend there's only one. Mm-hmm. And especially in the United States, where we go, okay, let me tell you how to to get rid of your guilt and sin. Here's the legal transaction you must make. Well, that doesn't compute with someone who comes from an Eastern frame or a Southern frame. What we're hoping is that there is this overlapping of these circles where we learn that that we need to understand what it means for someone in in Asia, what it means for someone in Europe in a post-Christian world, what it means for someone in South America to come to know the gospel of Jesus. It's going to mean that they come from it at a different frame. The message is the same. It's just that the frame is is different. And what we want to understand is that, for example, there's a book. I don't think we quoted this in our book. Bob Eckblad wrote a book called uh, Reading the Bible with the Damned and what he talks about is so how does someone in prison read the story of Jesus? Man, they read it as Jesus is going to Jesus is going to redeem my broken past and he's going to free me. Mm-hmm. How does someone in a poor rural community read the gospel of Jesus? Well, they're going to read it like Jesus is going to come and and bring good news into my broken down life. How does someone who Um, was abused as a child, uh, a victim of of sex trafficking, how would they come to hear the gospel? They would hear it as their shame is removed and honor is restored. What we need to understand is that everybody comes to the picture that is Jesus differently, and depending on what frame we put around it is how they hear it. We want them to hear it as good news, life-saving, world-putting-back-together news. And sometimes we just lock into one frame or another and say, oh, it's the Western way. That's the only way that that's, you know, I, I keep talking about this napkin thing, but that's what we do. We take a napkin and we write out the Western legal transaction to come to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. That's great. That's true. But there's so much more to this gospel. And for us to understand the different frames that people like the Western, Eastern, and Southern, I think allows us to experience more rooms of in this in this understanding of God.
1: Yeah. Wow. That that's so good and um so important for for the church to understand these different ways of seeing the world, these frames. And understanding that the better we understand the three the three different ways to see the world, right? The the southern frame, the eastern frame, the western frame, mm-hmm. the better we have a three dimensional picture yep. of our world. And especially I feel like you know, I already mentioned like how we're now in a globalized world, internet, immigration, right? I'm from Guadalajara, Mexico, and here I am in California. And mm. this thing happens all over the world, right? I mean, I've, I've, I've seen movies and I've heard from people and friends who live in, in Europe. Oh, you know, there's a lot of immigrants here in, in Europe too. Just the world is, people are interconnecting, people are traveling, people are going different places. Mm -hmm. And we must understand that as people engage in a, in a new culture, they have a different background than we do, right? They have a different mindset, a different set of maybe values or things or ways in which they see the world. And understanding these three cultural frames Mm -hmm. will help us better understand who we are talking to, right? Who, uh, whom, whom we are in the presence of in whatever situation. I think that's going to be super important. And I think maybe this is a little bit of that, um, what I was saying, right? The What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Like changing the paradigm of how we see things to understand mm-hmm. how, how Jesus sees things. I think you mentioned in the book, I, I'm just going to paraphrase because I, I don't have mm-hmm. the quote exactly. But you said something like, uh, kind of like the question we used to have back in the days, what would Jesus do? it's It's not about what would Jesus do? It's what would Jesus do if if he was you, right? Mm-hmm. if jesus have if Jesus had your set of uh, surroundings and understandings and everything you're going through, What would Jesus do in that situation, right? It makes it a whole complete different thing than just trying to bring Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, how would you react here? No, Mm -hmm. how would you react in this situation, but with the lens of Jesus in your life?
0: Well, look at the example that Paul gives us. You go back to the book of Acts, and Acts 17 is Paul in Athens. It's a very famous passage, and he's at Mars Hill. What it says that Paul did in the very beginning of that passage was he came in and he paid attention to the city. And he noticed and and he got up to speak. And he wasn't, again, if you'll notice in Acts 17, he didn't go Jesus. He didn't go, Well, the gospel of Jesus, he died for you, now repent of your sins. He goes, You know, I see that um, I see that you you have a lot of idols in your city. He paid attention, he walked around. And there was three I think there are three things that, that Paul noticed. He noticed that they had stories, the dominant story of their lives was ones that had to do with a bunch of different gods. Hmm. He also noticed that they had a lot of philosophers. He also noticed that they put a lot of dependency on their artists and their poets. And I think what Paul does in Acts chapter 17 is shows us how to come in and be like Jesus and pay attention to the world around us and the culture around us. I think we need to pay attention to the dominant stories of people's lives. You know, if you go back to Alex, what was the dominant story of her life? I think I needed to pay attention to that. And, and be aware that that maybe God is offering a different dominant story. Uh, I think the philosophers of our lives. So look at look at the world we live in. Um, Brene Brown, for example, famous author, podcaster, people love her stuff. Uh, Jordan Peterson uh, has gotten quite a following. Mm-hmm. You look at all these different people, those are our modern-day philosophers. And I'm not saying right or wrong on that at all, but I'm saying these are the people that people are drawn to why are they drawn to those philosophers well they're speaking some truth into their lives but they're they're speaking to longings that they have Uh, look at the artists and the poets of our days what makes you know like a big fan of stand-up comedy i think i think comedians are the modern day prophets i think i think chris rock and trevor noah and and i think hannah gadsby i think these comedians are speaking truth into a world. Now, I'm not saying it's gospel truth, so don't hear what I'm not saying, mm-hmm. but I think I think we gotta pay attention to what people are being drawn to and go, okay, I get that. The truth of Jesus is greater than that. Okay, cool, I understand that. What, what frame do we put around this picture so that they will understand that that truth is greater than that truth? I think Paul gave us that example in, in Act seventeen, I think he showed us how to live into that. He showed us the keys, if you will, and 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 to the to the kingdom and what it may look like. And I think we've got to learn from that. And I think I think there are disciplines and practices we can put in our lives to pay attention to those types of things. Mm-hmm.
1: So good, Mark. And you know for the people listening and for the people watching, because uh, now we have this show on Roku, too, I just want to say this book is phenomenal this book is rich even like you're saying in in understanding our culture so for example some of my uh my favorite moments when i was reading the book it's kind of like when you talk about you know even things like the truman show right a movie that yeah. that came out a few years and there's yeah. a few other um you know, cultural references that i think are are important because in a sense it's like you are trying to understand the world we're in the situation we're in so highly recommend this book for for people that are watching It's gonna like we're kind of saying at the beginning this might be when people look back 500 years from now at why did the world went under a reformation um (laughs) or whatever word they came up with um part of it is going to be you know people paying attention to what what god is already doing and how we're able to partner with what he's doing. So Mark, I would love to end with this. I don't know if maybe you want to either elaborate, just take your thoughts on this question or actually make a prayer, but what would the Lord's Prayer sound Mm -hmm. like in 2021? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, Um, that's a great question. I don't know where, I'm going to tell you what I think ideologically it might contain. I think it would, when we say uh, our Father who art in heaven, I I think it would be a recognition of how small we are and how big God is. I think in a world that everything is screaming to be our God, I think it would be a recognition and acknowledgement that God is bigger than any God that screams at me. I think I think the the Lord's Prayer for us today, especially the part where your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, I think it's us realizing the role that we have to play in putting the world back together, on earth as it is in heaven. This is not, this is not Lord Jesus, take me away from this broken world. This is Lord Jesus, may what, is happening here look like heaven coming to earth may we be people who believe in the sending of god may we be people who believe that god is a missionary god and that he has put us on mission and that the mission that we have is to is to bring the truth of jesus in body and in flesh and incarnate the truth of jesus so that the world we live in now has a little bit of heaven right here and right now. The the resurrection is real. The resurrection is true. And the resurrection is something that we can live right now. We don't have to wait to live it. But we are called to live this life in awe of this mysterious God. May our lives communicate that truth. May our lives embody that truth. May our lives reflect who this Jesus is and tell the story well. Amen.
1: So good, Mark. That's beautiful. Um, well, my friends, I just want to say, again, highly recommend getting the book. There's so much depth. There's so much more to explore in in, in the ideas that Alan and Mark are offering in the book. And um, I mean, I, you probably guys are authors and have even more books I, I, I haven't even realized. I know Alan does. Do you have any other... This is my first point? book. Okay. Yeah, this is
0: my first. Now, Alan has Alan is quite prolific in uh, Forgotten Ways and Shaping of Things to Come are two of his. Yeah. All his books are good, but those are the two books of his yeah. that, in fact, that influenced me the most.
1: I, I also noticed that at some point he quotes previous books, <laughs> right?
0: On he, does. <laughs> <Isn't> <laughs> he does. Isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. I didn't do that. I have no previous books to quote. So my yeah. quotes are all new. Yeah. On so. the
1: next one. Mark, I so much appreciate your time and um, your heart for doing this, for helping the church of the future understand where we're at and understand where we're going and why, you know, like open our eyes to, to our cultural moment and have more tools to step into the future with confidence and not in anything that we can do, but in everything that Christ has already done for us. Mm-hmm. and has shown to us in his way of living and then resurrecting and offering us his power wow now I'm saying like I'm preaching so <laughs> I'm gonna stop it there but man thank you so yeah. much for this time
0: thank you I appreciate the opportunity uh, we love we love talking about this stuff and yeah very grateful it's great to get to know you and great to uh, to be able to share today.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Christian Podcast. If you liked this episode, share it with friends and family. Make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review whatever you can. You can also visit ChristianPodcast.com to learn more about our show. Hasta la vista.